Welcome back to Teed Up. It's been a crazy week. Uh, I turned on my TV and saw Kanye West in the Oval Office uh, with the MAGA hat on. Uh, there's a lot of thoughts running through my head on this one, but I thought at least the timing is appropriate because I've been wanting to do an episode discussing the role of politics and startups for quite some time. And I'm lucky enough for today's episode to have Matt Moore, who currently works at Sonder, uh, but also has a large history of working with top companies such as Uber, who's here today to help me digest, you know, the 2016 election a little bit more, uh, looking back what it's like to work within a startup and have that happen, uh, look at how we're going to move forward, and talk a bit about what we expect from the midterm elections, as well as uh, the Sacramento Kings uh, upcoming basketball season. So this is a fun one. Stay tuned and enjoy. I'm drinking a vanilla almond tea right now. It's lovely for a crisp fall day. And hey, if you are digging this podcast, make sure that you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you crazy kids are listening to these days. Go ahead and subscribe so you can keep getting uh, updates from me. And on with the show. All right, fresh teed up. We've got a good friend of mine on the show. Uh, One day I'm going to have a good enemy on my show just to mix things up a little bit. But uh, I want everyone to welcome Matt Moore. Matt, how's it going? Hey, it's going well, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. So uh, tell me who you are. Tell tell the audience to teed up who you are and what you're currently doing right now and and where you've been. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So you and I, we got to know each other few years ago back when I was living in New York and um, yeah, basically at the time I was doing a startup of my own and I'm more of a designer background and um, you know after that startup didn't work out as you know almost all of them do um, I uh, actually shifted gears and moved out here to my native California and started working for Uber and so this was end of 2013, and so I was there for about four and a half years. And earlier this year, I decided to make the jump into another earlier stage startup and uh, join this company called Sonder. And basically, Sonder is you can think of like the best parts of a home and the best parts of a hotel in every neighborhood around the world. That's sort of what we're trying to create. So it's a new take on hospitality. And yeah, it's it's going really well. So I'm I'm leading up our design team here, and we're uh, you know going around doing research and creating this experience of the future. And so it's super fun. Been here about six months, and yeah, we're making great progress. And hopefully, uh, some folks listening to this will uh, give it a shot. Nice. Now, when you go to these hotels to do field research, are you taking the soaps from the the bathrooms? Are you collecting them? <laughs> well. You know, that's something that we talk about because in our spaces, um, you know, there's room for there's opportunity for, um, you know, improvement on that because, you know, it's it is definitely a thing. Right. Like when you get a hotel, as long as it's not attached to the wall. Right. Then you're probably going to be taking it home unless you know it's just not appealing to you at all. I was at the standard this past weekend in New York. Um, sorry to reach out to you. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, thank, thanks for the call. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. I was I had a date. I, uh, I had a date. I was a little pressed for time too. Uh, was out there. My friend was having his 40th birthday celebration, and yeah, he. Uh, I think he's first 40th birthday. He might be getting a divorce. It was interesting dynamic dealing with his wife and all this sort of stuff. Pretty pretty crazy. But um, anyways, I did take the soap, shampoo, uh, body wash, moisturizer black q-tip pack that they have at the standard it's like the calling card for you know hotel and so we got to be on top of that too and make sure that it's something that people are uh, wanting to take home and give their guests one of their own houses <laughs> yeah 100 uh, percent. i was gonna say one of my proudest moments at the meatball shop was when uh we took about we took about two months to design uh to revamp our matchbooks and this, the way you describe soap from the hotel, I 100% buy into that. Uh, we felt the same way about our matchbooks. At, you know, for a restaurant, that's the thing that you carry away with you. Uh, so you take that experience of the restaurant um, and you bring it into your home. And like the matchbook was our Trojan horse at the time to 
get into someone's house after they were in our restaurant. You know, we also then had cookbooks and we had hats and we had van sneakers at one point uh, to extend to extend that brand experience. But uh, I really feel like that was a really important thing. And like we had we had really the coolest matchbooks. They were black and gold and and uh, they, they cost a fortune, but they were definitely worth uh, worth it. And people like still use them to this day. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's interesting because it's like, you know, you and I being more creative focused, I think we definitely see the value in that, right? The intrinsic value. It's like, wow, this is cool. You can hold it in your hand. You can keep it. You have a lot of pride in it. And the tricky part is, you know, especially in a startup world where you're scrutinizing, you know, every, every dollar to an extent and trying to justify the value of these things. Um, it can be difficult to you know, measure the impact that, that that has. And so, yeah, it's just an interesting dynamic. I saw it at Uber, see it here, and I'm sure it's you know, prevalent across just the industry. Measure success. But, you know, these sorts of things, I think you just have to be like, hey, we're going to be principled about this and say, hey, these are important things. We're going to do them regardless of the measured impact. Yeah, I mean, everyone loves to uh, to bring down your, your CAC and, and increase your LTV, but that doesn't happen overnight. And I think part of the reason we're drawn to early stage, you know, high ceiling startups uh you know opportunity for growth uh is this experimentation phase where you do things that may not always make sense on paper uh and you try to do it uh as efficiently as possible and keep while keeping the cost down but sometimes you just need to go out and try new things yep 100 percent. so you must have been doing a lot of that because you were a crucial part of uber's growth team um Describe to me what it was like walking in day one, you know, what you were tasked with and, and how you went about your tenure uh, while you were at Uber. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, once again, I joined towards the end of 2013. And, yeah, this was like right after Uber X had launched. So prior to that, Uber was, you know, black car service. And, you know, I remember I was so hesitant to use Uber in New York just because, you know, it was like, triple quadruple the price of a taxi and uh, you know finally i just bit the bullet one day and was like all right i'm gonna try this thing out everyone's talking about it and you know it was incredible experience i remember like watching this black suv it's like a gmc yukon approaching my apartment in new york and i was just thinking like man this is the freaking future it reminded me of like that first time I booted up Windows 95 back nice. in the day. <laughs> I was like, you know, nothing is going to be the same after this. And to me, I was like, wow, you know, this is such an impactful thing. I got to figure out how to be a part of this. And um, he's actually a good friend, uh, Shai Goldman. When I talked to him about, you know, how to go about the decision making process of finding the company that I want to work for. He told me, hey, just put a list together, 10 companies that excite you, order it, start at the top, work your way down, figure out, hey, who would my boss be at that company and figure out how to talk to them. And so I did that, had a mutual connection with the head of design at Uber at the time. And yeah, you know, I was talking to them and it was basically the same day I got intro and I was on the call with them. That was like October 2013. And I said, hey, you know, I don't want to take this too fast. Um, I'm not going to be out there until Thanksgiving. Maybe we can reconnect at that time. That was probably one of the biggest mistakes of my life because I think that was, you know, right after they, or right when they raised like that Google ventures round and, you know, option pool shrunk and, you know, so hey man, start, startup dating is tough. Board. Startup dating is yeah. tough. You know, when you're in that early process of feeling out the situation, you don't want to go in too strong. And, uh, you want to keep it a little casual up front, but that can also cost you millions and millions of dollars. But hey, what's what's ain't no thing. Yeah, no, nah, hey, not a place to complain at all. Definitely grateful for what happened. But yeah, so you, you asked like, what was it like coming in? Yeah, so you know things were just kind of going nuts then, and I think like you know, you know I'm starting to feel this with this company too, where it's like you have to just be asking yourself every single day, what's the most important. Thing that I can do today. What are you know? What are the top five things I need to make happen today that can help move the business forward? And you know, it was very much like that. Uh, showing up at Uber and um, yeah, I think like my first projects, like you mentioned, was, I was on the growth team initially, and 
we didn't have much structure at that point. It was just like, Hey, let's get more riders and get more drivers. And, you know, we were just trying to figure out what sort of things we could put in front of people that would get them to take more trips. And so I think I was working on like some, uh, prizes for riders who took like their first trip, like badging, basically some like gamification, which, yeah, looking back at it now, I'm very happy that we didn't ultimately ship any of that stuff. Um, just because it was, you know, it's a little too gimmicky at that time. But, you know, soon after that, I switched gears and I focused on, um, you know, like our onboarding platform for drivers, which was like the top priority of the company. So it was really great to be part of this thing that had this just massive impact on the company. Um, and then, you know, more, more of my time there, ultimately switched over to, we called international growth. So that was focusing on China and India, building a unique product for these markets. So cash payments in India, that was kind of the big thing. And then after, you know, we left China, um, I, I helped start this team called Uber Freight, which is, you know, Uber's entrant into the world of trucking and logistics. So you got to basically travel. I remember looking at your Instagram and your Twitter and, you know, and now I look at it and just see how you ditched me when you're in New York. But, you know, previously I looked at it and you're like, wow, Matt's in India, Matt's in China. I mean, what started as, you know, I'm taking a new job in San Francisco, an exciting company, uh, made you into a world traveler. Talk about what it was like to, you know, leverage that opportunity you had to explore not only new markets, but be exposed to new cultures and how that had an effect on you when you were designing new projects. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think, um, you know, it's very easy when you're building software, the service, to focus on yourself, right, and meeting your needs. And so I think, you know, as designers, we basically try to expand that as much as we can. And um, but even then, you know, at Uber, we were still having very much like the San Francisco focus, right? Like, how's this working in the city we're in for riders and drivers? we weren't even hardly getting beyond, you know, the Bay area with the way we were thinking about how these services or how, you know, how the service was being received. And so, you know, going to India, China and having this directive where it's like, Hey, we need to win these markets. And that means, you know, for me as a designer building products for people in those markets and that meets their needs you know, yeah, it was it was very eye opening um, from a you know like software development and you know, user centered design perspective because hey, guess what? You get to India and people don't have credit cards. What's Uber uses a payment method? Credit cards. Oh, okay. Um, clearly, Uber's not going to work in this market unless we do something different. And so, you know, getting those stories and like having it be so, you know critical or so obvious to you when you go and spend time with folks in these markets and then bring it back to San Francisco, you know, you're just trying to sell and, you know, get other people on board with why this is something that's important. Um, you know, the same is true of China, China, you know, I, I talk about India cause I think like that, that cash products was pretty influential in like Uber's arc as a company. Um, but yeah, China was even more insane, right? Like, Uber literally launched the app and the service in Shanghai. This was like, this was in 2013 and they used Google maps and didn't accept a Chinese payment method. And so, you know, people who opened the app couldn't see a map because Google was blocked and they couldn't pay for a ride yet. They launched. And yeah, I think that's like a really great, uh, you know, story about how, when you're doing a startup and you're you know, going through this kind of like blitz scaling phase, you got to just go sometimes and then be embarrassed and p- pick up the pieces and figure out, Hey, what can we do to fix this broken sort of experience? And, you know, so that was really influential for me. Just, That's, know, that sounds like my dating I, life as well, by the way. <laughs> Just go and pick up the pieces later. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like Brett Kavanaugh's uh, dating life also. There's Gee. a segue. There's a segue <laughs> into politics. So 
just to fill in the audience on uh on what we're going to dive into, you know, when I when I approached Matt, you know, one one thing that Matt and I have been connecting on recently um, was how to be active during what I would describe as a turbulent uh, political uh, climate uh, right now, uh, and how technology can play a role in things such as the midterm election. So we're going to dive into that. Um, I think before we get there, you know, talking about politics and Uber is such an interesting case study to me because what started as, you know, technology for, I look at as like the people, right? It was kind of taking an industry uh, and improving it for many people uh, and creating a whole new job market for many. Um, there's this other side of Uber, especially in the press and in the public and in certain states in our country, you know, Uber's very vilified. It's almost like the dark night scenario. Um, talk to me about, you know, some of these highs and lows while you're at Uber, uh, some of the PR crises you may have faced. You know, how how do you handle these things when you're, you're at such a well-known startup? Um, and how do you keep your focus on your job? How do you rally your teammates? And how do you discuss both internal crises, uh, crises uh, internal issues, as well as balance it with these external issues that are kind of coming up um, all at the same time. There's a lot there. That's a big question. Um, you know, I think, you know, 2017 was a really hard years, you know, an Uber employee. Um, you know, I think like, you know, my level, I was often, almost always, not aware of, you know, the issues that came out through the media, like firsthand, like I, I didn't see all of these things that happened. Obviously, like being a white male, I'm going to have a different perspective than, you know, um, other folks that, that would be at Uber. But, you know, in my world and on my team and, you know, the folks that are reporting to me, yeah, I think that a lot of the things or almost everything that came out was like, wow, this is this was something that was occurring here. That said, you know, I think that there was definitely instances where it's like, okay, yeah, I, I could see that happening here, right? Like, I remember our HR team back then, I think we had like one HR business partner for like 2,000 tech employees. And, you know, I don't think that there's like negligence there or I don't, or maybe there was a, was a little bit, but, you know, when a company is going from, Nothing to, you know, tens of millions of rides per week in a matter of five years, six years. This company is just scaling so rapidly. There's going to be problems, right? We used to talk about how, you know, Uber was a, uh, you know, like a toddler in adult clothes, right? We were just like a very sort of like nascent organization in so many ways and different parts of the organization were going at different speeds but the expectation from the rest of you know the world and our users was hey you are a legit company you're super well known you need to act in a certain way and i don't disagree with that at all um you know we were def we definitely made mistakes and did things wrong but that's kind of you know it's, it's kind of the way that silicon valley companies work now right like if Uber didn't do that, someone else would have done similar sorts of things in that race to, um, you know, become the leader in the space. And so, you know, how do you deal with that sort of stuff as an employee? I'll tell you what, like, uh, I can imagine how it was being on the outside. It's like, Oh wow, Uber's doing this. Like, Oh, I'm not going to use them anymore. Uh, I'm going to you know, switch over to another service or whatnot. You know, the people that were taking this stuff the hardest were the people that were working there. It felt like we had very little control over what was happening, right? Sure. Um, and I remember people were like, oh, there's one point where there were, you know, during 2017 or lots of points like this where people were like, oh my God, how do you work for Uber? It's like, hey, everyone I know is really awesome and great. And, you know, we really believe in the mission. We're doing this really great thing. And yeah, you know, there are these pockets of, you know, trouble that have come up. But, you know, I, I think we all felt like we were sort of, in a way, being you know a little bit victimized too. 
obviously, you know, I don't want to uh, downplay, you know, things that happen with like Susan Fowler and all this sort of stuff. Like that's like by far much worse than what we were experiencing, but you know, it was not easy to be an Uber employee at that time and just feeling bad about yourself all the time. So, you know, I think that what do you do? You look at the good, you look at the people around you, you ask yourself like why you're there, just try to be principled about, you know, what you're doing and, you know, look for opportunities that you can make the environment better. Um, yeah, I think that's all really important. The other thing I wanted to say too, you know, we're talking a little bit about, you know, national politics and all this sort of stuff. I don't have a lot of, um, you know, sympathy for, Donald Trump and, you know, the environment that he finds himself in. Neither does but, the rest of the show, for the record. But, um, you know, when he talks about fake news and all this sort of stuff, you know, there is an element of truth to that. And I speak because there were absolutely things that were being said in the press about Uber that were very inaccurate and were, you know, clearly... Um, written and put together to drive clicks, right? Like, I put a blog post out a few months back that just had why I left Uber in it, and it got so many hits. I was getting contacted by, you know, journalists and everything, you know, just made it blow up. And, you know, the media is a business too. And so I'm absolutely like very pro journalism. And, you know, I, I pay, pay for the New York Times, Washington Post, and all this. Like journalistic work is awesome and important and essential to, you know, thriving democracy. But everything you consume, you need to take it with a grain of salt because there is oftentimes many sides of a story. And so I don't know. I don't agree with Trump on much, but I think that he can be, you know, potentially unfairly targeted at some points. I think there's something really interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, in public forums such as Twitter, uh, and thinking about how we consume our news stories and how we talk about them, something that really bothers me about the tech startup industry in particular, um, we tend to celebrate hardship and failure uh, of thriving companies or once thriving companies. Uh, it's something I've never understood. I think Uber was maybe the poster child for this at times, um, not trying to make light of any of the internal issues that you guys were facing, but I felt like you were also being unfairly targeted um, and that any bad news um, was being celebrated by just, I don't really understand, uh, by, by the masses. Um, they were almost rooting against you at times, uh, mm -hmm. which is a weird phenomenon because you had provided a service to them that, uh, yeah, the surge pricing gets annoying. You know, there's a lot of things that, that the consumer can complain about, but at the end of the day, you're trying to improve their lives. Um, I, I see it today with companies like Snapchat. Uh, I think like this morning I was looking at a tweet, you know, celebrating the fact that if you bought stock uh, or if you bought in on the day of their IPO, you know, you're, you're, you basically lost about 70% of what you invested at this point. Um, and look, I get it uh, to a degree on why we tend to attack companies that, you know, were looked at or still could be looked at as unicorns and they have this massive quick success and people get jealous at the same time like I have a lot of friends who work at these places and I have a lot of people that I know are working really hard and their jobs are protect are, are in jeopardy you know at times um, when these when these moments are played up you know and Facebook's another great example of this you know you know the data the data breaches are, are scary you know but I think the way people attack Facebook at times, um, they do so not realizing there are hundreds of people now who are working for this company, and maybe it's not the best thing to do at the moment. Hundreds, tens of thousands. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know everyone, but. Oh, hundreds of people you know. Okay, all right. But it, it's weird to me. <sighs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of different directions you can take that. Um you know, I think uh, that's, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily specific to startups. I think that there's this, you know, desire, you know, this instinct maybe, maybe, I don't know, hopefully it's just more of an American or Western civilization sort of thing where, yeah, the people or the organizations or companies or teams or whatever that, you know, are succeeding, right? The Goliaths 
we want them to be, you know, taken down by the Davids, right? And I think that's pretty innate to just, I guess, like our culture, society, um, you know, and I, 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 I'm sure, you know, you feel that way too with different things like, are you a Yankees fan? I don't know. I'm a big Yankees fan. This is this has been a brutal okay. So you're a big Yankees fan. So, <laughs> uh-huh. so um, you know, as a non-Yankees fan, yeah, I freaking don't want the Yankees to win just because they, uh, you know, they, they have everything stacked in their favor. And so, you know, I want to see um, that that uh, the prize spread out a little bit amongst other teams. Um, so, you know, I think there's some of that. I think um, there's also jealousy too, right? Um, you know, people, people at Facebook, people, you know, at Uber, you know, a lot of these companies, I don't think people necessarily work that much harder than, you know, the average person who's going about their lives and doing their work. Certainly there are some that do, but, you know, I don't think it's like a massive difference. And so, yeah, you know, I could definitely see some jealousy from people who are like, wow, you know, the company's worth $72 billion. Why isn't my company worth $72 billion? We work really hard, too. And, yeah, so I think there's a little bit of that in that, too. There's just a lot of things. People are very complex creatures. I think, like, it's, what you got to do is just, like, step back and stop trying to compete with other folks so much. And, you know, you got to compete against yourself. That's the only way you're ever going to advance and improve yourself. No, that's that's a great point. You know, that's something I, I've tried to make an effort. It's part of the reason I started doing this podcast instead of, you know, sending out a bunch of tweets all day or, or you know, trying to look into the tweets of others. You know, I, I'm trying to be thoughtful with what I put out into the world and thoughtful in what I assess and who I talk to and, and try to like have intimate conversations with people again versus just everyone shouting at each other, which is kind of what I feel Twitter is. It, it has been for a while. Uh, and now the loudest person in the room seems to be getting the most attention. And, and that person I think is, is, is our president. And that kind of leads me into how technology has birthed, uh, somewhat of a uh, tumultuous situation at the moment um, where we've given platforms to people to share their opinions uh, and not necessarily their facts. And it is dangerous. And trying to think of, of what angle to start this with, because I do want to talk about how this affects politics in general. But I think a good place for me to start is thinking back um, on the day that our, our president got elected. And I was at Peloton at the time. And I remember the day after. I mean, that day was was a miserable day. Uh, the, well, the day after the election, because you know we were all watching it at night. So the day after election, though, I just remember seeing people in the office crying and tears. And you know, Peloton's a very busy company. I would say it was the only time I ever saw for three to four hours. It shut down because people just couldn't work. It was just devastating. Wow. And I remember Peloton CEO John Foley kind of the next day after that kind of addressing it. And he did it in a very bipartisan way. And I thought he handled it very well, but basically said, like, these are going to be some trying times, you know, no matter what side you are on. And we have to do our best to focus on what we provide to the world, um, which, you know, fitness based classes and, and, and trying to look at the positives of the situations if you if you could at the time and if you can still now. Um, I find startups to be an interesting environment because by the nature of what we are doing, it's a very progressive environment, I feel. It's something that's always kept me in startups. You're always trying to look at how do you improve things? How do you improve things that broke? And so once the election happened and, and kind of moving up to this current day, one could argue there's not a whole lot of progress at times being made. And do you think technology has helped uh, set us backwards at times? Uh, in particular, I, I'm talking about Twitter. And also, do you think, and this is a double, I'm giving you these loaded, loaded questions, so please work with me here on this. But the second part of that, and I'll remind you of it because I'll probably forget it in two seconds. How, how has this been addressed in your experience in the startup environments you've worked in? I mean, obviously, Uber it was a, is a huge company, and I'm sure there was, there was talkings about what's going on nationally while you were there as well. Um, 
how, how do we attack this as people who work in startups who are used to making a lot of progress? Yeah. So, yeah, I would say uh, looking back to that time, I remember like before the election, you know, people, so we had this, I was working on Uber Freight at the time and we had this, you know, MAGA hat, uh, you know, play where it said, make, well, no, it was the red, it was the red cap. But instead of saying, you know, make America great again, it said, make America freight again. And we were having a good time wearing this hat because no one, you know, even that close to the election, just days before, people weren't taking Trump seriously. It's like, no way this is going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, I think like that election night, I was like, holy, holy smokes, what's going on? This can't be real. I remember going to bed and I told my wife, like, hey, when we wake up in the morning, you know, there's going to, this isn't over. There's going to be something that's happened and just refusing to believe it. Right. Um, and then you wake up and it's like, Oh no, this is still the case. We're still going to have, you know, the host of the celebrity apprentice, um, holding down the Oval office for the next four years. Um, and so, you know, I think Uber that day, I think we actually had a, an all hands that day and, yeah, it's just really somber environment, right? Um, yeah, obviously, in these startups and, and these cities, you're going to have much more of a progressive bent to them. But I think that that was, for me at least, and it appears a lot of other folks, it's a big wake up, right? Like, oh, wow, we get very much in a situation where we're comfortable with you know, where we're at and you get the new normal. It's like, cool, Obama's president. We're making all these progressive sort of moves and all this. <clears throat> but, you know, you really, I think people were just really resting on their laurels at that time. And, um, yeah, it's probably not honestly affected by technology. Like this is how looking back at previous elections, it's always like this, right? It's just, you have a balance of power switching between the parties. Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, hopefully 2016, just like 2008 was a wake up call for, you know, Republicans and, you know, far right people. I hope that 2016 was that wake up call for us and, you know, turns what is the majority, right? It's like 60 plus percent of people are progressive or, you know, more centrist. Um, you know, we need to like, take action to make sure that we're having representatives that reflect our values. So, you know, how does technology play into that? <laughs> you know, I think like there's going to be good things and there's going to be bad things. Absolutely. Like Twitter, obviously like Trump's ridiculous tirades is one thing, but yeah, you know, I remember election day I was on Facebook and I literally was seeing ads that were saying they were like, Hillary Clinton, vote for Hillary, had all the logo and like all this stuff. Text this number to vote for Hillary. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Poor people that, you know, think that that's like a way to cast their ballot. And that's on Facebook. And it's like, Facebook's letting this ad run. So, you know, they have a huge responsibility to ensure that what people are seeing on, um, you know, their services is not like unfairly swaying the election. Now that's subjective too, right? Like if it's something that's coming from Breitbart or something like that's going to sway the election, but it's not like a hundred percent misleading. So, you know, it's, it's tricky. Um, well, but well they, they, you know, you know why they think they can text in their vote. It's because companies like Uber have made it so easy to, uh, to navigate life. Everything comes to us, so why shouldn't we make that process easier? So, sure, texting is, is texting to vote such a crazy thing. Yeah, that's how you win your, you know, America's Next Top Model and your, <laughs> you know, uh, celebrity. What is it? Uh, American Idol, all this sort of stuff, right? That's, you know, the Meatball Shop oh. did, a, did a Celebrity Apprentice episode. I was not aware of that. Oh yeah, my my <laughs> first like three weeks into the job, um, Trump didn't actually come to a shop, but like. We have Dennis Rodman, you know, wearing a meatball shop hat. You know, it was Brett Michaels. I think it was, it, was, it was never did I think I'd be so tied to our current president. But yeah, there's, that's my six degrees of separation from Donald Trump. 
Well, did you a get a picture with him, or b did you um, get to hear him using the uh, N word like he is known to do? I don't. I don't think he made an appearance uh, at the shops, and Uh I actually am looking for this episode. So, if anyone out there can help me find the episode, please, you know, contact me because I actually I don't even think I've seen it in full. It was such a weird experience at the time. Like I was like, "What? What am I getting myself into?" But uh, but there's a funny photo. I'll probably like use it for the promotion of this episode, where uh, there's like Dennis Rodman and Amorosa like together in the meatball shop, like making meatballs, and just little did I know that that Dennis Rodman would become world leader, world peacekeeper, uh, <laughs> Dennis Rodman that he is today. Yeah, he's such an esteemed, you know, ambassador and. What a, what a great guy. But, um, you know, I think like one thing that's probably obvious to some folks, um, but I think is really worth reiterating now that we're, you know, days away from this midterm election is, you know, no one gives a damn about your tweets or your likes or your retweets or whatever it is you're posting on social media. Like, you know, all that stuff is just coming in one ear and going out the other. I ask, I'm curious, like I do this with myself sometimes. <laughs> I've, Think back to like, okay, this morning when I was looking at Twitter, what do I remember from Twitter? <laughs> like, literally, I remember zero, right? And so, you know, that might be like cathartic in a way and, you know, help you expand your thoughts a little bit or, you know, put sort of you in a different state of mind. Probably that's going to be the main thing that you're getting out of it, which a lot of times is just like unhappiness. Sure. Um, but it's not action. You got to take action, right? And technology is enabling that to happen. So, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of it. I've done a few sessions, but, you know, Beto Arouk in Texas, I, wa- I kind of want to see what it was like. Definitely love the guys as, you know, a leader and politician, all this stuff. But I joined the texting team for Beto, and, um, you know, I was sending out, you know, thousands of text messages to Texans. Uh, about how or asking who they're supporting for Senate race. And that is an effective use of technology to get out the vote and help people, you know, understand the perspective or the, you know, where a candidate stands. And, you know, that's something that's kind of like the breakout technology of 2018. They're saying for, you know, these midterms elections. So, you know, I think texting, like texting is a breakout technology. Well, bulk texting like that, sure. right? How are you obtaining the, the contact information? Well, this is all through the campaign, and from everything I understand, it is a legit thing. So, sure. you know, voting, voter records are publicly available. And so basically you just get that data, right, the names and numbers. And I, I believe it is actually showing, like, how people voted previously. Sure. I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, so it just saw that. And then basically what we were doing was just trying to determine, hey, who is a, um, you know, Cruz supporter, who's a Beto supporter. And then, you know, and the people who are sort of undecided help help them you understand the, the perspective of the candidate a little bit more. But then they were basically coming out of that with categorized lists of, you know, who to contact this now at this time of the election cycle where it's like, hey, you can actually go vote now. You told us you were going to vote for Beto. Go do it, right? So, like that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a really great use of technology, and it's a way of you know having, I guess, like that upper leg on the competition, if you will. But sure. surely there are tons and tons of other applications out there. Um, it's just up to you know folks like all of us to find them out. I think it's interesting because. Looking at platforms like Twitter, you know, Jack Dorsey has taken a very, like, laissez-faire approach, I feel, to trying to police the activity, and, and there are arguments for both sides. Um, do you think any companies are going to go all in one way or another on this upcoming election and say, hey, we really stand for this political view or this political candidate and we're going to back him and we're going to send a push notification to our users. I mean, obviously that's such a crazy concept to think of, but at the same time in 2016, you're seeing things on your Facebook telling people to text, which would would have been a crazy thing to think of at the time. Um, Do you think we're going to see any of that going forward uh, as we get close to the midterm elections and and who might be doing something like this? 
Well, yeah, you know, it's funny because I was just talking to someone about this too. Um, you know, like Uber and I think Lyft is doing this too, uh, like free rides to the, uh, the voting booth. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of sad that, um, you know, the whole get out the vote effort is actually, you know, a positive, the more people that vote, the more likely progressive candidates will win. Um, and so, you know, you could say any get out the vote, effort like that is um is, if it's not coming from like you know democrat or republican that's kind of the aim is to sway the election to the left and so you know if you believe in that sort of thing then hey you know uber and lyft november 8th or is that the, the i don't know whatever the election day is the second two or the first tuesday second tuesday of november they could send a push notification that morning say hey it's time to go vote. Press this button to get a ride right now in two minutes. That sways the election, right? Sure. And then, yeah, you're right. Like Facebook, Twitter, you know, maybe you get like a, a presidential alert on the day of the election. Like these sorts of things can have massive impact and they're definitely going to happen, right? Like maybe not those exact ones, but there's going to be these events now that happen where it's like, wow, what impact did that have? And so... That I don't know what you do with that. How do you have you know confidence in how people are being chosen to lead our country uh, or whatever jurisdiction it is? And you know you have these sorts of things that sway them so dramatically. Um, I don't know what the answer is. To that. It's interesting because you can look at this through the lens of user acquisition, and this is user acquisition for voting. I mean, I, have, I haven't done my Bumble episode yet. It's going to be a fan favorite because I have so many stories, but I just saw they added, like, I think it was a badge or something to signify that you plan to vote or that you, and then I assume that would be like, uh, we I voted sticker. Man, yeah, I mean, it's a great point that you bring up. It's like, how far uh, will technology enable people to vote? And in because of that, you know, is that swaying the election one way or the other? And I think I agree with your assessment in that the more people who go to vote, the better for for the Democrats at this point. Uh, Because we know from our last election that the people who did turn up um, thought very differently uh, from from some of the more liberal views. And yeah, I I think I agree. I'm trying to think, would there could there be an example? you know, obviously, there's going to be concern about Facebook hacking, and there's going to be concern about Russian interference and Chinese interference, and that's a dangerous part of this and a side effect of, of, of having these apps that has such large reach. Um, I mean, do you think we're going to see yeah. a lot of that again? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. See that. Like, it's already happening. Um, yeah, and I think you asked uh, the, your last question about, like, how much um, involvement should these companies have in politics and elections and all this like not from you know getting hacked perspective but listen i think you know being here in silicon valley and then you know i'm sure in new york it was similar to part of the reason why 2016 was so hard in the election was because the candidate literally does not stand for what the companies that we all work for stand for right like inclusiveness I don't see any people like hardly any people of color or hardly any women and you know, all the picks with Trump and his staff and all this, uh, obviously all the sexual assault, sexual harassment stuff, like these companies, like if you were to act like he conducts himself, um, you know, at your company, Hey, guess what? You're going to HR and you're probably packing your bags that day. Right. And I think like that's the thing that's so hard is like how do we have someone who's leading everything, this whole country, yet they don't reflect any of the values that we hold as a company. And so I think companies, you know, how do you act, right, in, in that sort of world? I think you know, people want companies that have principles, have values, use them internally, but also externally, right? And I think you see that you know, great example is Nike with Kaepernick's ad, right? Like that is a hundred percent true to Nike. It's true to Kaepernick. It definitely pisses off a lot of people in red States, but Hey, that doesn't matter, right? If you're going to act anyway, you have to act 
in a way that's true to who you are, whether that's a company or an individual. Otherwise, people will detect the inauthenticity. Uh, I don't think I said that word right. Inauthenticity. And, um, you know, then that's what's going to hurt your brand ultimately. Yeah, no, we, we did a, we did an episode where we, you know, right when Nike broke the Kaepernick news and, and now looking at how much Nike is actually profiting from since the announcement and there's a direct correlation and that, that makes me feel really good because it's, it's a great campaign and, and even if Nike were to lose money on it, it, it's still worth it, but they're not losing money. They're, they're doing really well since it and that's encouraging i mean i look at i look at the trump marketing team and part of me wants to say like these are the worst marketers in the world i mean like the content that they put out and you know the the, you mentioned the photos and it's it's a pr disaster yet it really appeals to his base so you could make the argument that they know exactly what they're doing um and it's scary it's scary i think it's almost depressing to me as a startup marketer like to watch these things sometimes work and i'm kind of hoping that we'll see a very positive effect from the activities of startups uh with this upcoming election uh to hopefully swing things back to a little bit of normalcy yeah absolutely um Speaking about abnormal things, uh, because you are a huge NBA fan, and we've talked about some heavy subjects here, you are one of the few remaining diehard, lifelong Sacramento Kings fans that I know. Uh, we're huge sports fans here on T-Dop, so tell me, uh, is this the year for the Sacramento Kings? Are we gonna, are we going to see uh, see a trophy? All right, well, short answer is no. Longer answer is yeah, you know, I grew up in the Sacramento area, and so you know, growing up in the in that area, you have you know the 49ers and you have the you know baseball Giants, and you got the Kings, right? And so those were kind of my teams growing up. But yeah, I started to, especially like I was in finishing up high school or whatever when the Kings were like really good, right, in the early 2000s, and so got this like deep bond with the team at that point. I was a fan before then, going back to like the old Apollonies, Billy Owens, Mitch Richmond, Spud Webb days. But, um, you know, so when the Kings became good, it was just this big shock, right? And everyone had so much pride, right? It's like, wow, people finally know who Sacramento is. This is incredible. Um, so, you know, it was so much identity of the city and the region is, is tied up in that team <laughs> to the point that give you give you an example here anecdote before we get into your championship uh ways um you know when the kings were going through their uh sale from the maloof brothers and it was looking like they were going to move to seattle um i actually helped organize a group of kings fans there were about 30 of us in new york and we went and protested outside the nba board of governors meeting um and what was that was that 2013 i, I guess remember that. I remember that. <laughs> yeah yeah, and um, it was pretty cool because we were out there chanting, wearing all our gear, and in that board of governors meeting, you know, Kevin Tom or Kevin Johnson, who was the mayor of Sacramento at the time, AJ. he was yeah, advocating for the Kings to stay and line up the new owner and all the stuff that would keep them there. He came out afterwards and talked to us for a little while. He's like, "Hey, you know, I really owe it to you guys because." You're out here standing, you know, in the cold chanting. And we were sitting at that meeting and all 30 owners could hear you chanting Sacramento. And so, you know, that was pretty. Too pretty bad cool. you weren't chanting Seattle a couple of years yeah. prior to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that was pretty cool. And, and then the Kings wound up staying. And, you know, the, like people were telling us, yeah, we had this big impact on. On, you know how that decision went down so that was like man i made my hometown proud i did the right thing and you know all of us did and so you know that was that was pretty cool and so you know now that the team has been staying um you know look look dude team is in a 12 year playoff drought um honestly like their offseason moves last this past off season and going back 12 years now have just been not too inspiring right i think um they you know if people what people are going to say about the kings this year is they got you know the young kings they got a lot of potential talent hey guess what kings are not the organization is not particularly good at developing talent okay so I think we're going to be lucky if one, two of those players turn out to be, you know, 
all-star caliber players. Um, and, and they'll get traded to Golden State. Yeah, and that's the thing too. When you have these like young, promising players, after a few years, and they're up for new contracts, unless they're having winning ways in Sacramento, you know they're going to want to go elsewhere because you're not going to get the shoe deal in Sacramento. You know you're not going to get all these sponsorship opportunities that you would have if you go to Golden State or you go to Los Angeles or you know wherever, basically any other market. So you know I think it's really a story about small market versus big market teams, right? And you see this with the Milwaukee Bucks, and you know, I guess the Timberwolves are kind of on the upswing. We only stand out. Did you read the news today? I think Jimmy Butler staged uh, a coup and, and took the bench and, and beat the starters. So I don't know about the upswing. Yeah, no, I saw that. So you know, these are types of things that happen in your small market teams, except San Antonio. Why is San Antonio a standout amongst this pack? Popovich. It's it's Popovich, and it's their ownership, right? And I think that, you know, you see it in these, you know, small market NBA team, but I think, you know, in other, other leagues as well, other sports, if you have a good team in a small market, that ownership group or owner is really invested and damn smart about the decisions they're making. And that's the only way that San Antonio has been able to keep Popovich there and then attract talent. I can't tell you the last player that, was in their prime and kind of like a superstar that wanted to go to the Kings. It probably was Vladi Divots in the you know summer of 98, yeah. 99. And I don't know about you, but Vladi Divots, he's not making my all-NBA roster or second or third or fourth team. And so, you know, that's the thing that these teams have to deal with is like people don't want to go there because the opportunity cost is too high. And then you get the, you know, maybe you get some star players through the draft, but it's damn hard to retain those people because even the way that the contracts work, even if you max someone out, they want to go somewhere where they can get the freaking deals and make the real money, right? Like, what's LeBron doing? He doesn't make, he, like, a small, like, I think it's like 10% or something of what he makes every year is coming through his contract. So it's like, you know, that, it's just like the whole economics are just really screwed up and very much against small markets. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there are two exceptions to to this. I agree with you. Uh, OKC is one of them. Uh, and seeing Paul George re-sign there, like, blew my mind. I, I didn't think that that was going to happen. You could, you could argue that Sam Presti has made some bad decisions in trading away James Harden. Uh, letting him go, uh, but that's a market where where it seems to be working out, and they're embracing like this underdog mentality. They've got to win a championship at some point, or else they're just you know grasping at straws. I think Milwaukee is the other example um, with Giannis, who is my front runner for MVP this year. Um, do they have enough to to beat the larger market teams, and do does Giannis have enough to make him as big of a star as he could be in another market? By his sheer talent, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. I think you can turn to Anthony Davis and say, "There's the perfect example of someone who should have probably been MVP maybe twice already, but he's buried in New Orleans, and and you know he's probably on his way to LA pretty soon, if not midseason." Um, but it's tough. I think the NBA really needs to address, you know, how they're going to manage the big market versus small market uh, dynamic that currently is happening over there. Yeah, well, you know, and I think like I, I will be, I'll actually be like really pumped if like, a team like Milwaukee can make it to the NBA Finals. First of all, second of all, win the NBA Finals. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't really want to talk about this, but if you go back to the 2002 Game Six, Lakers versus Kings, you know that game was rigged, right? Tim Donaghy, he uh, he swung the game. And you know, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, not much of a conspiracy theorist, but Hey, you living in New York or New Jersey, wherever you're living in at the time as a kid, you didn't want to see the Sacramento Kings in the NBA finals. You wanted to see the Lakers. Right. And that, you know, it goes back to, Hey, this is a business and there are going to be decisions made that may not be hundred percent ethical all the time, but they got to defend their interests too. And so I, I hope that, the Bucks can make it to the finals and win a title because that will uh, heal some wounds for me that go back a long time now. I was I was an intern 
at the NBA when the Donaghy scandal broke, and, and one of my buddies was tasked with, like, reviewing every single minute of every single Donaghy game that year, uh, which is a whole fun story, and we can talk about that in our time, but I just remember that finals that year that I was uh, entering at the NBA was Spurs versus LeBron's Cavs, and it was LeBron in the finals for the first time, and that was, like, the... One of the earlier moments I can remember where, like, this small market team was being watched for one player. Um, generally, like, the stars had always been in larger markets. You, uh, obviously, there are arguments against that, and I'm sure uh, there are many people could could refute that. But um, for the most part, from my memory, I mean, growing up, I mean, it was Jordan going against the Lakers, Jordan going against the Pistons, Jordan going, I mean, he went against the Suns, and, you know, Suns was a Charles Barkley and a KJ, as you mentioned, but it's largely, you know, you had your, your larger markets dominating. Um, I wonder, you know, how Milwaukee can progress. Uh, if, you know, here's my problem. If Giannis leaves, that team is set back again 20 years, right? So they're still very dependent on these, on these stars, and just look at Cleveland. I mean, are you going to watch a single Cavs game this year? Uh, no, <laughs> probably not. Lee <laughs> <laughs> Pass is going to be hurting. Like. Literally, no, you know, and truthfully, um, you know, it's pretty slammed and uh, relatively new father. And so I've pretty much only been watching Sacramento Kings games in the uh, last, last couple of years. But I try to keep up as much as I can. LeBron as a Laker is going to be interesting, but uh, but talking about you know raising a young daughter, uh, you know how has that affected the way you approach your life in startups? You know primarily. You know it's not too much different. I would say I think like you know back in we were talking about earlier like traveling and all this stuff internationally. Like that was something that I felt was important was that I stopped doing that and be home more. And then the other thing is like I I just try. You know, one of my sort of principles is like, I want to be there when she wakes up, have breakfast with her and then be home and have dinner with her and put her to bed. Like if I can do those things on like 90 plus percent of the time, then I think I'm doing pretty, pretty well. Um, you know, so it's just like, I think, I think a way of looking at it is, you know, I play for two teams now, right? I got my team at work and I got my team at home and I got to be there at the times that I need to be for both of them. And just being, you know, clear with both sides about what my expectations are for that or expectations are for myself. You know, I think it's just a change of approach a little bit, but you can do both these things. It's yeah. Even then like, you know, Saunders getting into a point where we're going through a pretty rapid high growth phase. And I just have to keep true to that. And, you know, we'll make this work. I think I think it helps being 30 in your 30s and in startups and and you have a much broader perspective uh, perspective on the things that are important in life and I don't mean that as a way of saying like well startups aren't important your company mission isn't important but it helps you get through the challenges of each day because you have two two worlds to support and I think your motivations for doing the best you can in each of those worlds kind of play uh, for each other instead of against each other. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing too that I've learned with time is like, you know, just, you can't just work just for working sake, right? Like there's something definitely to be said about, all right, I'm gonna take a break and think, and then when I do take an action, then it'll be more deliberate and, um, you know, be more likely to be correct. And so, yeah, you know, it's, it's experience. You pick up on how to work the most effectively that you can, not always the most, most effective, but you know, you get better at it, better at it. And I think that's pretty key to making this sort of stuff work too. Uh, hard hitting question here. Will you be trying Mayo chop? Um, you know, I've been trying mayo chop since you know, I did my study abroad thing in uh, Germany in 2003, getting rote und weiss. That's what they call it. It's French fries with ketchup and mayonnaise. Like, it's the only way I eat fries now, pretty much. I don't know why they need to put it in one bottle, right? Like, doesn't that <laughs> screw up the 
shelf life of the ketchup, right? I don't know. That's something I always, whenever I reach for the mail in my refrigerator, it's like, man, this stuff's expired already. The ketchup's got, you know, two more years on it. So I don't know. That's, I don't, I don't feel compelled to purchase the bottle that combines the two, but I'm always going to be getting separate bottles. Well, I have a whole episode dedicated to why you should, but uh, we'll let we'll let the fans of the, of the pod make their own decisions for themselves. Um, any closing thoughts? You have an open mic. You have we talked about a lot of heavy subjects, uh, some fun subjects as well. I'm giving you one minute to to basically say whatever's on your mind. You are on one of the hottest podcasts in America right now. What do you want the world to hear about? You know, just get yourself, your friends, your family. If you can get 10 people to vote that wouldn't have voted, then, hey, guess what? We're going to get uh, all the things that people want, the universal health care and you know, tuition-free college, all these things that can actually help our society, our country move forward in the world and stop lagging behind everyone. Because we definitely are and in our lifetime. Times, you know, we're going to have other countries like far exceed us if, unless we start to make these sorts of changes. All right. We'll leave it at that. Matt, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Teed Up and uh, look forward to having you on in the future when we can discuss how the Sacramento Kings won the NBA championship. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, I'll see you in yeah, 30 or 40 years. <laughs> Alright, that does it for this episode of Teed Up. And if you really want to make a difference, don't just tweet, don't just post on Instagram. Get out there and vote. Thanks for listening. This has been Teed Up with Andy Rosenberg. <laughs> <laughs>